You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tuss, and today I'll be speaking with author Edward Cahill about his debut novel, Disorderly Men. Edward teaches English at Fordham University, where he's been for about 20 years. Welcome to the show, Edward. Thank you so much, Mike. Great to be here. All right, well, let's, let's jump right in and talk about the book. The book is set in 1963 New York, about six years before Stonewall, and it follows the lives of several gay men. Talk to us about New York and the gay community at that time. Yeah, sure. So strictly speaking, it's 1962, uh, ah. it's February, February 1962, and we're on the cusp of tremendous social change, but we're not there yet. Um, and so I really wanted to find some queer men in a very tricky situation, right? Gays are only becoming a social group. In 1950, um, uh, you know, the Mattachine Society um, and Harry Hay were sort of proposing this idea that gays were a specific social group. Not everybody believed it. Not every gay person wanted to be a part of a group, mm-hmm. right? So being queer in mid-century meant living in a very low information economy. Um, this is why a raid headline that outed queer people could destroy lives, but it's also why those headlines taught people where to go, you mm-hmm. know, where to meet other, you know, um, uh, to meet, you know, folks like them. Right. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's an exciting world. There's, you know, the, you know, civil rights is happening. Uh, the idea that, that people who didn't have rights before might, might one day have them is, uh, is circulating, but, but the gay community isn't quite there yet. And so I wanted to see what would happen uh, if, if a group of men were provoked into facing these questions. Um, and it's the, it's the bar raid that provokes them. Yeah. And, you know, I found fascinating the way you dealt with each character, and we're going to talk a little bit about him and how each character dealt with the situations a little differently. Did you have to do any research about the time period, or is this something, you know, that you, that you just kind of commonly knew? Um, no, of course, I did a lot of research, and it was, it was incredibly fun. Uh, you know, there's so much happening in terms of uh, politics and, uh, uh, you know, scientific innovation. Um, you know, we're, we're in the, you know, the thick of the Cold War, uh, but also a tremendous amount of optimism. New York City in 1962, uh, you know, is, is also a much racier place than I think we, we realize. In a lot of ways, it's still the 50s, mm-hmm. but it's, um, you know, it's the 50s that's very conservative in some ways. And you know, so much going on in terms of art, you know, abstract expressionism and music, uh, you know, jazz. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really lively place. Yeah. Well, you know, you're talking about culture and in New York, most people are probably familiar with the McCarthy era, uh, but they're probably not familiar with the so-called lavender scare in the late fifties, which was, I think, still having an effect. Talk Talk to those folks that are unfamiliar with it about what the lavender scare was and what it meant to the gay community. Yeah, so I mean, you know, in a way, this this goes back to the 1920s um, yeah. when, mm-hmm. um, you know, the federal government decided that um, homosexuals were a risk, uh, and so they started drumming them out of, uh, you know, the military. Um, it's really in the 1950s, just after World War II, uh, that enough uh, enough interested, you know, folks decide that um, gays, uh, who, many of whom served um, in World War II, mm-hmm. uh, are a threat. Um, you know, they're, they're considered uh, deviants, um, even sexual psychopaths, um, simply for being gay. And so they need to be eliminated. And so there are really, you know, organized campaigns um, to, uh, to eliminate 
um, you know, gay people from uh, the federal workforce, but really in another way, just to make them invisible. Uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the laws that my characters face were called um, uh, lewd, vague laws. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, you know, disorderly conduct, really, uh, really ambiguous laws for which, um, uh, yeah. you know, anyone could anyone could be arrested at right. any time. Right. And the, the, the overall goal was really to kind of purify the population um, of, of, you know, of queerness uh, mm-hmm. to make gay people absolutely invisible. Um, and, you know, it was a terrible thing and it destroyed so many people's lives. But it was also the impetus for the gay civil rights movement, because, you know, something as extreme as this campaign of invisibility um, was was just enough to get um, to get activists going and to demand actual visibility. Yeah. And, and, and part of your uh, your book title, I should say, Disorderly Men, I assume, comes from the fact that that's what some of this legislation was called. Right. To uh, be yeah. arrested for disorderly conduct. Right. Yeah. You know, disorderly conduct is like it's like, you know, what your dad called acting up. You know, it, it could mean anything. Um, <laughs> well, um, you didn't you didn't necessarily know what it meant. Right. Right. Um, and it, sometimes it just meant being who you were or, uh, you know, insisting on who you were. Yeah. Well, uh, but as, but it, but it was enough to get you thrown. In yeah. Jail. Well, as somebody who wore a red dress the other day for the red dress run, I suspect it would have caught me as well. Um, all right. For those that are too young to remember. OK. The, what were the ramifications for these different cultural shifts coming together for the gay men in New York in 1962, 1963? You've touched on it a little bit. Is there anything additional to that? Um, the ramifications, what do you mean? Well, if you have to try to live your life. You've got legislation that's hemming you in on one side. You're being prohibited from getting certain jobs. Um, how do you go about living your life? Yeah, I think, you know, most people live their life without much community. Okay. Uh, it was very dangerous to try to form community, um, but of course, you know, queer people will f- we will find each other, and we did. Okay. Um, and so, you know, bars bars were were uh, really a crucial place for people to find each other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the writer um, uh, Caleb Crane, um, mm-hmm. uh, who blurbed my book, yeah. uh, said it really, really well. He said, you know, <clears throat> in mid century. Gay men knew what they wanted, but they didn't know who they were. Ah. And they had to find each other in order to know who they were. So, you know, this is, this is like living undercover. Um, yeah. uh, and it's very stressful. And what? I think, you know, there, there, are still, you know, there are still men and women um, alive who live through this. And I think they will tell you it was a very, very stressful way to live. Yeah, and you know, I think it's interesting that you say they had to find out who they were. That comes across in several of the characters, I think, in the book, that they're struggling with that. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And so you're talking about the nightclubs. The book actually starts off with a police raid uh, on a gay nightclub called Caesars, where most of the book's characters are. Why did you start the book that way? Why did you decide to start with this, uh, with this, you know, situation? Well, you know, the raid is a, a it's a it's a terrible, dangerous, um, also exciting event. Um, and I think their lives would have gone on um, as they had had it not been for the raid. So, yeah. you know, the raid is the inciting incident, but it really is. It's the provocation. If someone is going to threaten to take your rights away, you have to decide who you are. Yeah. You have to decide whether you're valuable, whether whether you are willing to fight back. Um, you know, it's it's a common gay boy's fantasy to have the strength and courage to fight back. Um, 
but there's a real history too. Um, you know, gay people have fought back. Um, I was just reading recently about 1962 gay boxer um, Emil Griffith pummeled yeah. to death mm -hmm. his opponent for making anti-gay slurs. Right. Um, uh, you know, more recently, there was a viral video of a gay Indiana teen who refused to be called the F word by a homophobic bully, and he slugged him. Yeah. Um, you, you know, that that idea of, of fighting back, you know, it happened. It hasn't it hasn't been represented. So, you know, I wanted I wanted the raid to be uh, the the thing that, that presented this problem to my characters and gave them, uh, you know, gave them a, a conflict that had to be resolved. And what was at stake was their their very humanity. You know, one of the things that struck me, because I love the way the book started, and so let's talk about it. Roger is, it looks like he's about to make a pickup of a young guy, and then the raid occurs. And what struck me is that you, it was almost metaphorical that you had set up a situation that had both the joy and the fear of being a gay man at the time. Am I reading too much into that? No, 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 that's exactly right. You know, Roger comes into the city, um, leaves his wife and kids once a month, that's his kind of, you know, mm -hmm. that's what he allows himself. Um, and everything depends on that experience. You know, he needs it in order to feel like he's not he's not suffocating. And he thinks he's about to get, you know, his wish. He thinks he's about to get what what he needs to carry on. And then the police come in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and and he's not going to get any of that. And then, you know, poor Roger, everything seems to kind of uh, go south on him at that point. Yeah, let's um, let's talk yeah. about his character a little bit because I was struck by a couple of things. As you mentioned, he's he's gay, but he's married to Corinne, and they have two kids. And I couldn't help noticing how often in the book he talks negatively about other gay men, about their femininity. Um, it, he also admires his wife, but again, he seems to dislike her on a certain level. Is Roger? Is this Roger's dislike of the feminine a reflection of what he's struggling with himself, and that you know, trying to get to know who you are? Or am I reading that yeah. too much into that? No, no, you are spot on. Yeah, yeah. Roger, R Roger's sexuality is 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 a problem from him. It, it's 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 not so much a source of joy as it is, um, uh, you know, a burden. Mm -hmm. And um, he had to get married. He felt like he had no choice. Uh, but he's loved men his whole life. Um, but he doesn't see himself as a gay man. Um, you know, he doesn't see himself as part of a community. Um, it's only when he meets Julian that he begins to realize that he might, in fact, be a part of a community. But it's a huge step for him to, uh, you know, to realize that. Um, and, um, yeah, Roger, you know, poor Roger has so much internalized homophobia. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, he's he's uh, he's culpable. But I think, you know, we also get the sense that, um, you know, given his experience, um, this is all pretty natural and normal for him. It's normal for him to to be as afraid of his sexuality as he is. It makes sense, given the way he grew up. You know, it's I don't know how to, to, else to say it. It certainly resonated with me as kind of a universal theme that people can understand, especially at that time period, although even perhaps today for some folks. Uh, considering some of the backlash that's going on. Now, Roger has a friend, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Schuler, who's married and uh, has kids. Skyler. Skyler, Skyler yeah. okay. Uh, Skyler seems to be like the all-American guy, okay? Um, what does Roger get out of that relationship? You know, in a lot of ways, Roger wants to be Skyler. Uh -huh. um, he's handsome, he's strong, he's straight. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think, I think it's, it's pretty clear that he's, he's kind of in love with them and, and really has been for, you know, for a very long time. So, you know, he gets the, the emotional, uh, the emotional well-being of being near him. 
he, he admires him so much. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I won't give it away, but that yeah, becomes yeah. problematic. You know, yeah. you can only, you can only be in love with your best friend, your straight best friend for too long before things get complicated. Well, and, and I, I assume Skyler provides, I don't know, know what other word to use, some type of cover for him uh, in that, you know, he can go places with Skyler, be seen with Skyler, uh, and everybody, you know, knows Skyler's story. Um, and I, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things about mid-century culture is that um, uh, it was a gender-segregated culture. Men right, spent a lot right. of time together. Um, and it was a real great cover for queerness because... Uh-huh. Um, you know, men could spend a lot of time together um, uh, and they could meet each other and they could have sex with each other and they could do all sorts of things. Um, and nobody assumed that there was anything gay about it. Right. Um, that actually became, um, you know, trickier to do once there was, you know, a visible gay community and, you know, uh, you know, gay identities. Um, and uh, the, yeah, yeah. you know, that 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 cover really doesn't you know, doesn't exist. And I think there's something kind of ambiguous about that, because on the one hand, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of hiding. It's not open and it's not honest. On the other hand, for characters like Roger and Julian, there's something very exciting about it, too. Um, yeah. And, it, it, you know, a, a source of real pleasure. Yeah. Well, speaking of Julian, Julian Prince is engaged to a woman, Penn. Um, and that was not an uncommon way to hide. I mean, Roger's married as well, but that was not an uncommon way to hide one's sexuality at that time, right? You know, um, um, once uh, at one point, my editor sent me some copy that referred to my three characters as um, closeted gay men. Uh-huh. And and I wrote back, I said, everybody was closeted sure. in 1962. Yeah. You weren't you weren't out. I mean, you know, very, very rarely. Um, and and yeah, so Julian, you know, Julian is far more out than Roger is, uh, but he's not completely out. He's not as out as his boyfriend, Gus, is. Right. Um, and so he thinks of Roger as, you know, one of these kind of sad men who has to creep into the city and live so secretively. But Julian also realized he has secrets of his own because everybody has secrets. Everybody in 1962 has the burden of, of hiding some part of themselves. Yeah. And, uh, and um, you know, a fiancé is, uh, is, is one way to do it. Yeah. Well, all right. Now, writers will often tell me that if they create a good character or characters, that the characters will help write the story in this book, in Disorderly Men. Is there a particular character that helped you write the book? I think once I figured out who all three of my characters were, uh-huh. um, uh, Roger, Julian, and Danny, um, in some ways I kind of let them take over. Yeah. You know, I knew that they had to respond to, uh, you know, to being arrested yeah. um, and that their stories were going to go in different directions, and I wanted them in some ways to meet. Um, once I figured out who they were um, and, you know, what their constraints were and what their aspirations were, um, yeah, they pretty much started telling the stories, uh, their stories themselves. Yeah. Do you, you know, writers will say to me sometimes that they live with their characters. Um, is this, a, this is a process that you go through or that you went through with these characters or um, that they kind of live with them, develop them uh, as before you start putting pen to paper? Um, well, I, I tend to just put, put pen to paper, okay. or at least, uh, you know, um, I type on my, on my laptop uh, a lot in order to figure out what it is that I'm doing. So I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and, you know, eventually I began to see who they were. I began to understand how they thought and what they sounded like. Um, and at that point, 
it you know it it became clear kind of what what my plot was going to be yeah, yeah. um uh but you know the 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 i think you, you really have to get pretty deep inside a character mm-hmm. to know to know what it is that they really want um and to kind of be with them through that process of finding out what it is that they really want yeah. so yeah it definitely took some time yeah well you know one of the things that i'm always curious about is when you create characters and then you put them in situations that perhaps you yourself have not been in, and then you have to figure out how they get out of them, uh, or how they get through them. Do you learn anything about yourself? Did, did, did you learn anything about yourself as you created these characters and put them in these different situations? Yeah, you know, I think I did. I think um, one of the things that all three characters, and I think, you know, all, all queer people, uh, particularly in mid-century, um, deal with is shame. Yeah. And... Um, you know, and they have to face it, they have to live with it, they have to understand it, maybe they can begin to transcend it. Um, and I think one of the things my characters just made so clear to me is that, um, you know, shame will not protect you the way you think. It wow. Might, yeah. Right? yeah. You know, we, we develop it as a kind of protection, right, to keep us from doing things that are going to get us in trouble. Right. Um, but, uh, but, you know, each of them, each of them really in very, very different ways has to kind of confront the shame that lives with them. Um, and, and each in their, in their different ways begins to realize that that's not working. Yeah. That well, let, hanging onto it isn't working. And, and each, as, as you've alluded to, each character deals with this situation, the arrest and that in different ways. We haven't really talked about Danny uh, at all. He seemed to, that for, from my perspective, was one of the more interesting characters. Maybe that says something about my personality. But t- talk a little bit about Danny and how he decides to respond to the to the arrest. Yeah, you know, so Danny grows up um, in an Irish family in the Bronx, um, and he's been fighting his whole life because he has a bunch of brothers, um, and they're not always very nice. Right. Um, so Danny knows how to fight, um, but he's always kind of lived, um, uh, you know, under under the cover um, of, you know, queer invisibility. He could do what he wanted. Um, he could have his gay friends. Um, nobody ever said anything, but he's, uh, he's in his early twenties now. And, uh, you know, the mask, uh, is starting to drop. Um, and, uh, you know, at the very beginning of, of the novel, um, his family kicks him out. Of right. The house. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's kind of set loose mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the things that have helped him before aren't working anymore. He doesn't have the protection of, of, you know, home anymore. Um, uh, his experience of being arrested uh, is a real game changer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he's been a, a fairly happy-go-lucky kid most of his life. The scales fall from his eyes, and he begins to see the world how it really is. Yeah. And because he's, he's a feisty, energetic, uh, you know, uh, strong character with a real sense of who he is, mm-hmm. yeah. um, he, he decides that this is not something he's going to take lying down. Yeah, yeah. I, I found him to be very int- Well, all the characters were interesting. The other thing that struck me was that these arrests <clears throat> actually start a journey of discovery for each one of these yeah. folks. Uh, you know, you've talked about, you know, trying to decide who you are, but it's really the raid and the arrest that are the catalyst for that in the story, right? Yeah, and, um, you know, I don't, I don't wish an arrest on anybody because, <laughs> um, you right. know, I, I've never been arrested myself, but, um, you know, the research I did tells me that it's a pretty traumatizing uh, event sure. uh, and something to be, you know, something to be avoided. But it did happen between 1923 and 1966. Over 50,000 men in New York City were arrested on um, um, 
a Ludwig charges. Wow. Right? 50,000 wow. men. So that's 50,000 lives um, disrupted. And, you know, is there a silver lining there? Um, I wanted to imagine that, it, that, that for at least some, it was the beginning of, of, of a process where they might decide to value themselves you know, to, to, to stand yeah. up and say, I don't deserve this. Yeah, I, yeah. I deserve to be treated better. Yeah. At, at one point in the book, we learned that one of the characters has been put in the hospital for treatment because, because he's gay. How was, this is before conversion therapy and all of that nonsense, but how was homosexuality allegedly treated back then? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. Um, uh, there was a, a movement, um, in the 1950s, um, that basically diagnosed a homosexual as a sexual psychopath. Okay. That simply being gay <clears throat> meant that you were you were mentally ill and needed to be incarcerated um, and and treated um, and you know treated in really all sorts of barbaric ways. Um, you know, not just um, enforced right um, uh, uh, celibacy talk therapy. Yeah, right. Um, but. Uh, um, you know, lobotomies, um, chemical castration. Oh, wow. um, um, some men were given a drug uh, that that essentially paralyzed them and made them feel like they were drowning. Mm. Um, they were forced to watch gay pornography and then given emetics, which would make them vomit. Um, and this was all in the name of, you know, changing their sexual desires. Um, the science was really bad. Yeah. Um, it was uh, it was junk science. Um, and it was really only when, uh, you know, queer people began protesting this kind of treatment that it stopped happening. Yeah. You know, I think when I always think about that, I think about Alan Turing. Um, yeah. And in, 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 I think he died in 54, well, committed suicide in 54 or 55. Um, in essence, you know, created the computer, him and another fellow. Um, and he had to go through... If my memory might be wrong, but he may have had been, been given hormones or required to take some type of estrogen or something like that. Or, or I think test. he was he was essentially chemically castrated. Is that and, it? Okay. Um, yeah, and and agreed to do it, but because he was really given no other choice. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a more precious life, um, a more valuable, you know, uh, intellectual resource than you know Alan Turing being just so senselessly destroyed. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I get in trouble with some of my, my more conservative friends, but I always say that's how Apple Computers got its name. Because, you know, Turing killed himself by putting cyanide in an apple, and then he bit the apple. I didn't know that. Ah, yeah. Well, Apple Computers yeah. is not in a hurry to come out and tell, tell me whether I'm right or wrong. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there is a moment in the book, and, and the folks that are listening, there's lots of moments in the book that are going to cause you to sit back and think about and reflect, and I, I really enjoy that. There's a moment in the book that seems insignificant, but I want to ask you about it. Corrine is driving. Roger's in the car. She's basically now learned about his life or his alternate life. And she's driving on an icy road, and the car spins around twice. She never loses control, and you write that it ends up, quote, facing in exactly the same direction they had been traveling, close quote. Should I take that to mean that despite everything, they're going to stay together? Ah, well, that's, a, that's, that's an, interesting, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> um, I don't want to give away what happens, but I think what I'll say is that um, – is that Roger's experience and Corinne's experience, uh, because it's hers, you know, as much as it is his, yeah. um, is, uh, is absolutely um, destabilizing. Yeah. 
Um, but you know, in the end, the car doesn't crash. Right. Um, and yes, they're, they're pointing in the same direction, but, um, but, but I guess more importantly, they're okay. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. safe. Yeah. Um, it was really scary. In fact, you know, I was once driving to Boston uh, with a friend of mine and a car sort of swerved at me and I swerved to, to miss it. And I ended up spinning twice. Um, ah. and then, uh, and, and, you know, my friend next to me was screaming and, um, and we, and, and, and the same thing happened. And then there we were pointing in the same direction. Everybody okay. was fine. Nobody was hurt. It was really, really scary, but everything was fine. And I think that that was, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the feeling that I was going for. Yeah. Um, nobody's been, nobody's been hurt here. Everybody's been shaken up. Um, everybody's learned a lot more about who they are and about what they want, about what they need. Um, and those are, those are the really important things. Yeah. Well, I thought it was it was wonderful. Uh, it made me reflect on it and seeing it in lots of different ways. Well, let me ask a couple more questions before we have to end. You know, I'll ask sure. authors sometimes, why do you write? And, you know, some folks will say, um, I write for myself. Others will say, you know, they do it to write, make a social point or a political point. And a few of them will say they do it for the money. I, I can guess what the answer is for you, but this is your first novel. Wh- why did you choose to write it? Well, you know, I've been a literary historian for, uh, you know, over 20 years. Um, and, it, you know, if, if you are a, uh, a scholar, your audience is a pretty small one. Um, right. And I was, I, you know, when I, when I started this book, I was in the middle of, of another book, um, uh, my second monograph. And it was a, a really uh, extensive uh, history of the idea of social mobility uh, in the early modern Atlantic world. Um, and I was so interested in this book, but I also knew that it was unlikely that more than a hundred people would ever read it. And I wanted a bigger audience. I wanted more interlocutors. I want, wanted more people responding to what I had to say. So I just pushed all of that aside and started writing a novel because I thought maybe, maybe that might give me, you know, the, the chance to do it. But you know, why do I, why do I write fiction? Mm-hmm. I mean, writing gives me pleasure, but fiction gives me a special kind of pleasure. And it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's an SSRI for me. It just ah. makes me feel good. Okay. And, you know, whether whether a book uh, does really well or, or doesn't do so well, if I'm if I'm enjoying the, the process and I really do uh, enjoy the process so much, then it's it's you know, it's worth it for me. It's it's my preferred way to spend my time. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you one final question. You know, unfortunately, we are living in a time where uh, authors are not particularly valued. Uh, books are being banned. Uh, some authors are attacked. Librarians attacked. Do you have any concerns about the book uh, ending up on some banned book list? Well, you know, for for uh, selfish reasons, I hope my book will be banned. Um, <laughs> right. I, I invite anybody um, in a book banning state to to, to ban my book. Um, yeah. Please, please do consider it. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's a moment of backlash. Yeah. Um, I think the books that are being banned um, are books that are forcing people to just to accept reality and not everybody wants to accept reality. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, uh, books, particularly queer books, um, are in a really strong place right now. There's just there's more queer writing than ever before. There are more queer writers. Yeah. Uh, there's queer storytelling everywhere. So banning is never going to work. Um, uh, you know, the the. The kids are the kids are all right. They're they're teaching us a lot. They're teaching us uh, uh, a lot about uh, how to live fearlessly and freely. 
Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm worried in the short term, but not so worried in the long term. Good. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, folks, you've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been really lucky to speak with author Edward Cahill about his debut novel, Disorderly Man. It's a good one. You should pick it up. Edward, is there a social media site or a website that folks can go to in order to learn more about you and the book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is um, edwardcahill.net, and that's um, Edward Cahill, all one word, and Cahill is C-A-H-I-L-L, edwardcahill.net. Uh, thanks, right. Edward. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks very much, Mike. It was a real pleasure. Okay. Folks, music for the show today has been provided by Valerie Hunt Jester and audio by Henry Berto.